Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Renoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about things that go on in our practices, balancing being a therapist and a real person in our off-work time. And it's been a while since we've done a little bit of a mailbag sort of episode, and this is kind of a a double whammy of both mailbag user <laughs> feedback while also being a continuing education eligible episode. So I don't know if this is just like we didn't want to put together a traditional CE episode <laughs> out of laziness or just having a lot to kind of put together and take a, a grouping of, of our audience questions here. So we're always happy to get feedback, get questions. Sometimes you make it onto the podcast and <laughs> Katie is going to, she, she has cultivated a, a number of ethics-related things. So this is a law and ethics-eligible CE thing. And she's going to serve as our, our our reader of audience readings. Well, I think reader, but also like the person that's going to to argue a little bit with you, I think, because I think there's times when there's times you're a little rigid. Not not usually. I think oftentimes you're able to push the envelope, but there are times when it's like, but wait a second, what about this? So I'm going to do the, but wait a second, what about this as well? Okay. So the first segment, I think, really is in response to an episode that I think everyone should listen to. It's on dual relationships, and there's the famous now 17-part uh, ethical decision-making process that we go through. And honestly, I think we we actually ended up doing the second half with the ethical decision-making process twice. What got published was around a dual relationship in taking a client that knows a current client. For our Patreon folks, we actually did one on can we sell our 
therapy clients are coaching products and services. And so we got feedback on both, really, which okay. is nice. But I think the first one is one that I already know the answer to this, but I think the the way that it's brought forward oftentimes, whether it's in Facebook groups or the things that we've we've gotten from our listeners, is this idea that we can't have these deeper relationships with, with our clients. We can't be friends. Uh, we can't do therapy with colleagues, stuff like that. And th- that is clearly not true. That's overly rigid. But beyond that, like you cannot have sex with your clients, it seems like therapists hold this notion that we cannot have any other relationship with our therapy clients, except for the small town therapy folks. They they understand that they're going to know pretty much all of their clients. But but most attorneys can can work with their friends. Obviously, there's there's some, you know, I'm not going to go into their ethics codes and, and their conduct codes of conduct. But but what actually is true here? What kind of a relationship can we have with our therapy clients? Where do the ethics fall on this? So I'm going to frame this with the codes of ethics are in place first and foremost to kind of set an expectation that professionals can kind of set an expectation to the public of what to expect from most of us in most situations. And from the get-go, I'm saying that there's going to be a lot of it depends in these kinds of things, but there's also some pretty significant differences from one code of ethics to another. So part of this is look at the code of ethics for the profession in which you belong. The history of our podcast, we've gotten into, you know, the psychiatrists have a different code of ethics than the psychologists than the LCSWs than the MFTs than the PCCs and so on and so forth. So use whichever code of ethics applies to you and go through a wonderful 17 step process. (laughs) Don't worry, folks, we're not going to do the 17 step process on this episode. Yes. (laughs) But I think most of the codes of ethics say something to the effect of we need to avoid harmful dual relationships. Some of the codes do a better job of explaining that here's a definition of what dual relationships are, which is any relationship that you have with somebody who is that's in addition to your therapeutic relationship with them. And as you bring up, you know, kind of the small town sorts of things where some of them are going to be unavoidable. Uh, we've talked at length in past about how sometimes even in urban settings that dual relationships can sometimes even be helpful to clients. But I think as a profession, we tend to have a problem with, but even though this is an it depends contextual question, I want a really black and white answer that applies to everything all of the time. <laughs> so that way I don't have to continuously think about these things. And dear listeners, I'm breaking the news to you that you got to keep thinking because ultimately what's underneath harmful dual relationships is being able to foresee and foreseeably avoid boundary crossings, harmful things that happen between clients and therapists that can really impact the therapist's ability in their role as therapists that might end up putting too much power into the therapist part of the relationship, whether it be knowledge of things that a client isn't ready to talk about in therapy or things that can be manipulated by the therapist. When it comes to how 
ethics committees look at therapist behavior in these situations, it's how foreseeable was any potential boundary crossings or boundary violations in these situations? What did the therapist do to take care of it? And that kind of guides like, all right, were you smart enough to look at? Could there be harm here? What did you do to manage the potential of harm there? And was there harm actually caused? So it's still kind of, you know, maybe not a concrete enough answer here. There's nothing that's preventing you from having a dual relationship or a deeper relationship with clients. It's how smart are you about it? And what are you doing in those situations where you're like, anybody else in the profession would be like, yeah, that's something that you shouldn't have gotten into. Well, I think the the challenge, though, is the what would a similarly situated therapist have done? Because I think a lot of therapists are very rigid about this. And so there are folks who aren't able to get therapy, for example, because of the relationships they have with therapists or because of of some of these things or people are very cautious about entering into these relationships. And so to me, I feel like the the biggest part of what you're talking about is looking at the particular person that you're thinking about embarking on either therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, or the reverse, joining a committee they're on or going to an event where they might be or those types of things. It seems like it's specific to the client and the relationship that you have with that client or prospective client. Yes. And I think that's hard because a lot of times, and this is something I've actually talked about with my my own therapist is therapy seems to be clearer on those relationships versus consulting or coaching clients because coaching and consulting clients it's very messy and it can feel very bad when you go to like a lunch with a coaching client and either it feels imbalanced one way where they're constantly asking to just pick your brain real quick things that they would normally pay for they're wanting to get over coffee Or the reverse, you're sitting there selling to this coaching client because you need more revenue or something. And I think that we kind of address it and remove it as therapists because we don't quickly go to, I can just be friends or or interact socially with my therapy clients because there's nothing that is said about it. We can, but it's, it's a more thoughtful process. Does that make sense? I feel like you got kind of a confused expression on your face. Well, I'm trying to hone in on what your question is here and why other professionals can do this kind of stuff and therapists can't. And here, here's you know kind of my off-the-cuff sort of answer to this is as a profession that prides itself on the working mechanism of what happens, of, of why change happens, if it's about the relationship and we're muddying the waters of what the relationship is without clearly defining it, that's what separates it. Like, if I can be friends with my attorney, and my attorney can go in and do whatever it is that I need my attorney to do, there there are certain laws and stuff that I expect them to be able to do the legal things that they do for me. It's my attorney... I'm not friends with my attorney. My attorney probably is very annoyed with me about a lot of things. But... (laughs) But that is something that it doesn't muddy the waters of what their task as my attorney is. If, you know, I'm friends with my doctor and we go out for dinner and my doctor would probably be like, 
you sure you want to order that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, you know, uh, that, that might, you know, muddy how I feel about them overall, but it's not necessarily going to change how well that, you know, they draw blood from me. You know, these are the kinds of things that our mechanism of change as a profession is entirely around the relationship that we have with people. When we don't clearly look at how that affects people, when we're not directly sitting in front of people in our office or in front of our telehealth sessions or out in the community or wherever you serve your clients, when there's that additional piece to it, this is the professional responsibility that's different for therapists here. That makes a lot of sense. I think that helps me more than than any of the other pieces. Because to me, you say, well, avoid boundary crossings or or avoid violations. And it's like, okay, violations feel a little bit clearer. You know, those things become clear whether they're legal or ethical violations. But boundaries are personal. People determine where their boundaries are. And I think the the challenge is determining what boundaries need to be present in the relationship that you're in. And that's a dynamic. Boundaries are set and and navigated, negotiated between two or more people, right? I can set my boundaries. You can set your boundaries. But if we're actually in relationship, those boundaries need to be negotiated and, and talked about between the two of us because you may have different boundaries with me than you do with someone else who you work with, right? Yeah, right. And so, so talking about how the relationship is the mechanism of action for therapy or one of the most important parts of that and how protective we are, I think that feels very, very clear. Because there are some some of my colleagues, for example, who I think could navigate a therapeutic relationship in some ways and some that absolutely could not. Sure. And so I think being able to determine, okay, what does that look like? How does this impact this particular relationship? And am I thinking about whether I'm going to harm the client or prospective client? And is there a, a potential good that will come from making this step? Yeah, I think you got it totally. Okay. So this is similar, and it this speaks to the the Patreon version of our dual relationship episode, but but we, you know, spoiler alert, we got to, I was not going to sell my coaching program to my therapy clients. <laughs> but it's not necessarily completely against the ethical codes to do so, right? right? So what is the potential for harm in selling additional services to our therapy clients or having a therapist and de facto coaching relationship with the same client? What do we have to look for there? I mean, a lot of this is going to come back down to, does it foreseeably put people in a position where they are feeling obligated, pressured? Is it something that goes against those boundaries that creates boundary violations to a client? Does it set expectations to these kinds of things? If, you know, your course costs 5% of what a session fee is, I wouldn't worry about it. I, unless you make there be reasons to worry about it. <laughs> if you're providing extreme sliding scale, you know, services on a week by week session and your coaching course costs, 
you know, the equivalent of a year's worth of therapy sessions. Like, again, this is a, a very context dependent sort of thing. I think that a lot of these kinds of questions very much stem from every situation needs to be treated as an exact equal situation. But there's a lot of context dependency in these kinds of things. And it's a lot safer, and especially the way that laws and ethics get taught to early career clinicians is, if you made this mistake with everybody, would it create harm? And in a lot of cases, at that point in your career, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. So it's something where getting to some of the nuance and some of the experience and why part of looking at ethics is talking with other professionals about this and getting multiple viewpoints on things to help you come to a decision on this is really important. Like you said, there's nothing in the ethics codes as far as I'm aware of that says you can't sell things to your clients. You can't have other businesses. None of the ethics codes are going to say that. And in fact, if the ethics codes do say that, then those ethics, you know, overseeing bodies are probably going to run into like antitrust sort of issues. Is it unwise in some situations? Absolutely. Is it unethical because it creates a situation in those dual relationships sometimes because that power influence in the relationship is there? Yeah, that can make it unethical at times. But like I said, there's a big difference in like, all right, if you have a client that just won the lottery and is now ready to take your how to be wealthy coaching course, it makes total sense. If it's somebody that, like I said, you've been seeing on sliding scale who's, you know, working with poverty issues, might be a, an entirely different conversation there. So I'm maybe frustratingly through a lot of this episode, just going to be like, the answer is really, it depends. And part of going through an ethical decision-making model should help clarify a lot of these it depends questions for you. I think the thing that for me muddies this a little bit is that there are what are good business practices. I I also consulted with CAMPT, the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, on a program I was doing and was told your therapy clients can't sign up for this one day workshop and was given a very definitive answer that I can't do this very thing that we're saying probably would not cause harm. I mean, there's there's a lot to think about with this. And I do recommend, even though I make fun of it, I do recommend the 17-step process here because how you're going to show up in these courses, what you're, what that relationship looks like, those are all very much it depends. So I get that. So so there's that element, with which is what you're talking about. But then there's this other part, which is Ethical codes feel a little bit patriarchal here. You know, we're saying our clients are weak and we can't challenge them in this way or we can't we can't become this powerful being that are going to force them to buy stuff from us. We have to it's infantilizing to a certain extent. There's an element of this where it's like these are consumers who who are able to make decisions. And it's assuming that when they become our therapy client, that power differential is such that we have to protect them from dual relationships. And 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 I think there is some truth there, but I also I'm trying to look out other professions don't worry about this this much. <laughs> and and so it feels a little bit like, you know, kind of and we have a whole episode on, you know, kind of the racist patriarchal 
origins of our ethics. It's like, how do we determine if this is left over from that and we're unnecessarily infantilizing our clients? And how do we determine if this is just the, the right thing to do? Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. You know, I used to feel the way that you described this. Okay. I used to feel that our ethics codes both treated clients as extremely weak, but also the most capable people altogether. <laughs> and it took kind of a while for me to to see that at least as an ethics committee would look at something, is that we should treat people as equal as possible, as as capable as possible in making some of these decisions. But for those clients who do need that extra consideration, that is why those pieces are still in the ethics codes. You know, the clients who are going to, you know, have a dependency on somebody who's in a power position do need to be looked at differently than people who are coming in for phase of life Z codes. That Mm -hmm. there's needing to be some room for both that helps to guide people in a number of different situations and a number of different things. You know, it's like saying that all clients from a certain, you know, racial or immigration group are going to behave exactly the same. Well, people from first generation, second generation out of that group are going to be looking very differently than somebody who's, you know, only been in the country for a handful of weeks. So I mean, and, and, each person within each of those things that you described are going to be different. Exactly. And so as an ethics committee would look at these kinds of things, what they're looking for is what is your thought process when it comes to this particular client? If there are things that are very obvious that this client has relational trauma issues, then you're going to be expected as a professional to have more foresight and not have the expectations to treat them in the exact same way as, you know, here's a colleague of yours who's generally, you know, upstanding within the community and is coming in and dealing with a, you know, should I close my practice? You know, I'm kind of looking at, you know, do I want to keep doing this anymore? It's, it's again, it's going to be a very 
context dependent sort of discussion depending on who's there. I think in, in the way that you're describing it, the way that I admit that I had looked at this before is we're trying to look for our ethics codes to apply to every single situation and give us the exact answer of what to do. When really, I think a lot of the codes end up being more in a place that's like, we can't predict everything. Not everything is going to be outlined. And if we did, Kurt's six-hour courses would be dreadfully boring because they're going to end up, you know, just trying to get into the nitty-gritty of every single situation and define them. But I think that it it really is kind of that middle path of both. Like for the clients that you should treat as being fully independent and making informed decisions about everything, on the other end of things there's going to be clients who are in the middle of, let's say, a psychotic episode that aren't going to be able to have the same wherewithal to make those same kinds of decisions. I think our codes, for the most part, help to look at both of those situations. I think, you know, Whitney said this in our episode on kind of religious sort of stuff, is that, or maybe it was on the one that we did with her, but like, people don't always read the entirety of the ethics code. And so we kind of try to create this like, well, here's this one size fits all for everything, but there's parts of the code that they're obviously not referring to. What happens with that is when we're able to go client by client, we can make those decisions and be more nuanced and identify when we're protecting our clients purposefully or if it's unnecessary, right? Yeah. When we're looking at putting together a course or or some sort of coaching program, we may need to go to a more overarching plan where clients can't purchase this. And and so then we're we're stuck with the same thing where we're we're going to the most protected versus being able to be more flexible. And I think the 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 listener who reached out on this was was about this limits our ability to grow our income. It limits our ability to to have sustainable practices, and it feels harmful to us as professionals. And I see that, and I think you and I at points get to a place where we we disagree on how much therapists should take care of themselves versus focus on their clients. And we'll probably get into that again later in this episode. But to me, it feels like. Following the structure of the ethics codes and having a policy that goes to a protective place and then looking for exceptions on a case-by-case basis, I think becomes something that we can do as professionals. Or is there something that 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 would that that could also be harmful if we don't consistently apply policies on some of these things? I come from the standpoint that anything could be harmful. You know, I see you drinking your water there, Katie. You drink too much water. That could be harmful. Like there's, there's the potential for harm. The part that we look for is how well did you foresee things that should have been foreseeable? Okay. Okay. So I think we've, we've addressed that pretty well. I think the last one, and this is actually my question, I'm going to claim it, but can or should we Google our clients or follow or read their social media profiles? What are the pros and cons of knowing more about what is out there about our clients? 
depending on your code of ethics, you know, I talked about this at the beginning. The ACA code of ethics says absolutely not. It's a breach of privacy, right? Yeah. Without client permission, don't do it. Other ethics codes are varying degrees of that all the way down to not stating anything at all. So <laughs> a little out of date, huh? <laughs> yeah. The aspects of this, and I hear different, you know, theoretical arguments on this from all sides, you know, on one hand, it's, you know, very much like the therapy relationship is what the client brings into the room. And if they want you to have adjunctive information about them, they need to give you the permission to look at those kinds of things. Other well-meaning people are like, I should do as much homework as possible to understand what is going on with my clients before they come in. I think that personally, that approach can lead to some opportunistic bias, whether it's intentional or not as far as how you interpret things that are not necessarily within the context of how the client wants to be understood. I think it can be something that, you know, I, I've made mention before, you know, people who are like, oh, I'm on the phone with you and I'm Googling your phone number to see what your house value is to know that if I can charge you more than <laughs> what my listed fee is, you know, as of 15 minutes ago, my fee just went up to $9,000 per session. <laughs> So is it something that therapists should do or shouldn't do? If you follow the ACA code of ethics, absolutely not. Sure. Is it something that has the potential to bias your relationship with your clients? Absolutely. I think that it's being able to kind of frame things in ways like you've had a, a situation recently where client had something that was happening in the news. I've had these situations before, you know, being in LA for both of us, there's yeah, celebrity news kinds of things that seep into sessions. Are they things that we should be aware of? Eh, I, I don't have a, a strong opinion on those kinds of things. Is it something that you might come across just in your day-to-day -day life? Totally. Is it how you handle that information the most important thing totally is your own personal curiosity diving into things that's pretty bad um <laughs> is that unethical depends on your ethics code yeah i think for me the 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 piece and and we had a little bit of a conversation on this prior to recording and so you've addressed some of the questions i had already but I think the piece for me is as a consultant, I do want to understand the public perception of my client as a, as a cult consultant and coach. Like I want to, to have that information so that I am prepared for the conversation. The frame of that relationship is different. They're asking totally different. For, get, out, get out of here with your coaching nonsense. Well, this is on, a therapy podcast. All right. But, but the, the frame of it is based on wanting some sort of strategy or executive coaching or something like that, right? So there's, there's an, or business coaching. And so there's an element of, I need to show that I've done a little bit of homework. And, and when I network, I, I Google folks or I Google their companies, or I, I, I look at their, their websites before I meet with them to show I've done my due diligence. And what I'm hearing here from you is that therapy clients may not expect that and may not want that. 
And, and what I came to, and I'll just, I'll cut to the chase so we can get to the next question is if I have clients that are sitting in that field, because I often do career and executive therapy Mm -hmm. that I can add a question to my intake saying, are there things you'd like me to know? Feel free to, to add links and, or additional context here. Right. And I do have a, is there anything else you'd like me to know on my therapy questionnaire? Uh, But I haven't said, feel free to add links because I think some folks may want you to, to have some background that they don't want to have to explain. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's permission. And I don't know that that's, you know, I wouldn't highlight it. It would be the last question that's more of a throwaway question, but there may be folks that actually want a little bit more homework on the therapist part because they're so tired of having to explain everything. I'm thinking of that therapy meme where it's like, I'm switching therapists so often that I've just created a PowerPoint <laughs> of my entire history. Yes. So so maybe that's, you know, you can also attach your therapy PowerPoint here. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So that's that's the ones that are specifically dual relationships. I think there's some other ones that'll come up about dual relationships as we go forward. But the next one I got, which was really, really interesting, was about documentation. And this is a series of questions that I think are very interesting. It boils down to what is the minimum required documentation, but... Part of it is, do we need to do digital documentation? Do we need to have documentation for all clients? And this came from someone that their niche is, frankly, billionaires. So folks are cautious, very high profile. They have a fear about their information, either being obtained through hacking or legal means and and not wanting information to be present. And so what is the minimum requirement and how do we make sure that we're following laws and ethics around documentation while also understanding that we have clients who have different needs? The the right amount of documentation is to do the right amount of documentation. Oh my gosh. You said this was going to be frustrating, but that isn't an especially frustrating answer. What is the right amount of documentation? The Simple question, and I guess simpler answer to this, first and foremost, is that you are not required to do things electronically. I think some of the updates around HIPAA and high-tech laws and those kinds of things provided a lot of guidance towards encouraging most things to be done electronically, but there's no requirement that you have to put things into an electronic device. Okay. So that part's easy. How about the you said the right amount of documentation that is the most frustrating answer so far <laughs> yes the records that we have to keep need to accurately reflect what is going on in our therapeutic work with clients and so it needs to not necessarily over describe and be a word for word transcript of things but it does need to kind of state like here's what's happened in sessions. Do you need to get into absolute details and quotes on things? I think you're going to get a wide variety of answers from a lot of different people. But regardless of the medium, this is straight out of the ACA Codes of Ethics. Regardless of the medium, counselors include sufficient and timely documentation to facilitate the delivery and continuity of services. Counselors take reasonable steps to ensure that documentation accurately reflects client progress and services provided. 
however much that you need to do in order to do that is the standard, whether you're an ACA code of ethics person or not. That's a pretty good description across all of the the fields that we do. So the answer to this is even if people don't want stuff written down, you still need to write stuff down. Sure. Demographic information, I think there's a certain amount, and, and we don't need to make this into a documentation episode, but there's the diagnosis issue. Do they have to have a diagnosis? Do we have to explain medical necessity? Like, like if I have bare bones documentation that talk about my interventions and a vague client response, I I put a Z code down or I have no diagnosis and just say client is in in therapy to for life transitions. <laughs> like like at what point is it just like I can't do therapy for this person because I can't sufficiently document therapy? And diagnostic is an interesting question because I think you know you and I are both marriage and family therapists. One of us, I know for sure, does family therapy. The other, possibly. I do uh, sometimes. Okay. I do sometimes. If it's a family system, there's not a diagnostic there. Like, as a as a true thing. You know, if you're... I, I see the question on your face. You're going to IP somebody. You're going to identify patient somebody. And you're going to... I have to. I had to when I was doing it. it. Was it was under insurance, so I had to have an IP. I had to have a diagnosis. So, so there's different parameters. But I'm talking about we're not using insurance and sure family. So that that theoretically goes for anyone, right? Anybody can come into therapy for any reason, and they don't have to have a diagnosis. They just have to have a presenting problem. So you bring up the term medical necessity, which is a term out of third-party reimbursers, insurance companies, those kinds of things, in order to justify paying you for the services that you're providing. So, you know, can people come into therapy without a diagnosis? Sure, there's situations that call for that. Are you going to get reimbursed for those services by a third-party thing? Probably not. So part of that medical necessity documentation aspect thing might be for a third-party provider. What you are expected to do, though, is have goals, have a treatment plan, and have your documentation reflect your work on that thing together. Okay. That makes sense. I, I think there's a whole other conversation we go into about what is therapy and that, you know, the diagnosis thing. I think we talk about that there, too. So I'll link to that in the show notes. But I think, to me, there's that element of if someone wants nothing written, not even their full name. And they're they're wanting to to do something different. I think they're not seeking therapy. They're seeking a different type of support. And we should not engage in a therapeutic relationship with them. Correct. And there's nothing that precludes you from doing that kind of work with somebody outside of your therapy practice. Just run it as a different business sort of thing. That does mm. not like don't call something therapy. And then do something that's not therapy. It's just kind of like, if what you're doing is not therapy, then make it very obvious that it's not therapy. I think the challenge, though, is if it's very close to therapy, but it's not therapy because this is a person that doesn't want their information 
anywhere and they're traveling around the country or the world. Like, I think it's something where we've got a therapy versus coaching one. We probably will end up having to do more therapy versus coaching episodes, but it's really how do you distinguish the service from therapy, right? Yeah, you need to have that be in your descriptors and your agreements of what you're doing very much up front. What you're describing is the impossible burger of therapy, which is <laughs> it's close. It's not the same thing. It, <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So another another area, this is one that I think we might really, really struggle with, is therapists that have some sort of a public persona. We have the influencer question. We have the therapists as performers, actors and musicians question. Where do we want to start? I want to start with you asking a question because I know that I'm not going to give credence unless it's a response to something. As we are recording, we've got a couple of strikes going on from, with the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think, can therapists be performers? Can they be actors and musicians? Can they have an OnlyFans account? Like, can therapists have other jobs that are very public? There's nothing that says that they can't. Okay. I think that it takes on a whole responsibility of other things that makes it to where there's the potential for your therapeutic work to be influenced by people's understanding of you outside of what you do. I mean, you and I are both in the Los Angeles area. You and I both know people who have been on the the big screen, the, the little screens, the, the that was a part of their former life. And depending on, you know, who we run into, those might have been very prominent in a previous part of their life. Some of them didn't make it in those industries and, you know, became therapists. <laughs> <laughs> so the, there is definitely that potential for people to be like, oh, don't I know you from being murdered in a Saw movie? <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be something that, yeah, you're allowed to have a past life on things. Nothing's going to prevent you from having side hustles as far as our ethics codes go. It's how you manage those situations when it comes up that really does influence things. Now, you you bring up, you know, the the question about having a OnlyFans sort of thing. Unethical? Absolutely not. Unwise? Potentially. And I'm even going to give this a, a, a pretty big, you know, kind of space here is that, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of like, lived experience when it comes to being able to work with people from different backgrounds. If somebody's lived experience of being an OnlyFans content creator allows for them to work from a better position with sex workers, I see that there's potential benefits to those kinds of things. But really, the pearl clutching will come around. What if people find you with your concurrent OnlyFans account and what happens with that? You, you know, you can't like, I don't, I don't know how OnlyFans works. I, I have clients who do it. I don't know the, the ditty gritty of it, but if you can't stop people from seeking you out on these sites, even if there's a, you know, hidden username sort of thing, does that have the potential to really shift how clients see you? 
Yeah. How you handle that information, how that impacts the therapy sort of thing. This comes into how well you hold yourself as a professional in those situations. It's knowing that this is a potential as you create that kind of content. You know, some people call Katie and me influencers. I think ours is substantially (laughs) different. I mean, I, I will say I don't have an OnlyFans account. I make sure that a lot of the stuff that I put out into the world is largely therapy related. And I'm not intentionally doing this to be a therapy influencer by any means, but people have called us this. So, I mean, I'm granting a lot of people to be like, yeah, you can go out and you can do things and you can be an influencer and that kind of stuff. Understand that that could add to your brand that could detract from your brand depending on who's looking at the content that you're putting out there unethical no unwise some situations helpful yeah definitely for some people if it's done thoughtfully Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. A question that comes up for me is that when you have these things, whether it's an OnlyFans or you're an actor or a musician or you, you're a social media influencer or something, right? There's something that is in the public sphere. Do, and I know that this is context dependent, but I want to open the question to discuss the context. Do you inform your clients about it? Do you talk about how we might interact in the public sphere? And if there are things that you, find out about me that you want to talk about, bring them back. And of course, that means your client's going to Google you right away. But I think there's that element of how far ahead of it do you get and how do you determine what the conversation is with your client? And I'll give you an example of how I've done this. I've had therapists who reach out to me for therapy. And depending on the presenting problem, depending on how all of that plays out, I let them know about the podcast or when I was president of camp, I would let them know those things and talk about, you know, or if they were a local therapist, I'm the person who runs the local therapist Facebook group. I talked about those things and said, would these be a problem to you? And and how would you take that in? It was It was within the context of the conversation, but I think there's that element of, is this person putting themselves in an uncomfortable situation by becoming your client if they don't know where you sit in the world in other places publicly? What you're describing is some of the foresight that I was referring to earlier in the episode. You know, do I need to tell every seven-year-old who comes into my practice that I have a podcast for therapists and that I do these other public <laughs> things? Absolutely not. So I think, you know, this is, again, one of those very much it depends sorts of situations. If this is somebody who's likely going to run into you in events, yeah, you should probably bring that up and be like, here's generally how I'm going to handle these kinds of situations. If 
that takes the surprise out of those kinds of situations, yeah, that's one of the ways of handling dual relationships. If it's something that movie that you were in 25 years ago as an actor is getting a reboot and it's, you know, all a buzz and you're being, you know, brought back up onto like Comic-Con panels and that kind of stuff. And you have a practice that works with therapy geeks and those kinds of things. Yeah, you might bring up those kinds of things. Your skill is to then bring things back to why your client is actually there and not making it about yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think, you know, as far as our ethics goes, it leaves a lot of your life outside of being a therapist really open to doing a lot of things. It's the skill of how you handle when that shows up in therapy and not making it necessarily about you ends up being something that if you need specific guidance on, I'd encourage you to consult with other people, but there's nothing that absolutely forbids any of this kind of stuff. In our episode around, is your social media making you look bad as a therapist? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'll link that in the show notes as well. Towards the end, there was an element of our conversation where you kind of went to a place of therapists shouldn't be influencers. And I disagreed and we we kind of went back and forth and I don't think we got to an answer there. And and, and if, if we're not going to get to an answer here, that's fine too. But I feel like there are a lot of ethics codes, how we look at things. Those things were written prior to social media. They were written prior to a lot of this technology. As you've stated, some of those have been updated. But I think that there's mechanism of thought that we have to have very high standards. We have to be beyond reproach. And there's a lot of that that just doesn't fly when there's cell cell phone cameras and social media and all of those things. And so what do we really need to pay attention to, whether it's in our own just social media, but also if we're wanting to be influencers, especially within our niche and, and use it as therapist marketing, what are the things that we can do in a positive way? Not just like, hey, you shouldn't do it, But how can we be effective in social media, especially if that's a mechanism of us marketing our practices? I want to clarify that my point isn't don't be an influencer. My point is have the foresight to know that what you're putting out and influencing might detract from how your clients or potential clients see your ability to work with them. I mean, look at how many people throughout the pandemic had very strong 30% informed viewpoints about the ways that the world should operate things that completely detracted or influenced how much you liked the person as far as their art and artistry uh, someplace else. So we run the same risks of that. We might not have a bajillion Instagram followers or something like that. But my caution is that you want to show consistency with who you are and veering too much into too many things, being only partially informed about things really has the potential to make you not be seen in the way that you want to be seen. And, you know, going back, to that episode as as opposed to this episode ethically 
when you make public statements as a professional, people are going to grasp onto those. And people are going to say, well, this therapist spoke out about this thing. Therefore, the entire industry is, you know, crumbling down sort of thing, you know, (laughs) propping somebody up just because they have credentials and an opinion that doesn't necessarily fit within the status quo. That might be what you want to do, but you do have a responsibility to speak truthfully as a professional in those situations. Now, if you're out influencing something else, I don't know, uh, uh, Herbalife, (laughs) (laughs) you test the credibility when you put your credentials in that sphere. Uh, You know, so it's something where very much like, is there anything that forbids you from that? No. Are you going to be held accountable when you use your professional status to influence those kinds of things? Absolutely, if there's a complaint. I think there's probably more of an episode on this, and, and maybe we need to find a, a cool therapist influencer that will come on and talk about this and how they're ethically being a, a an effective influencer. Because I feel like there's there's more guidance to be here, but we don't have time for that level of conversation. But I, I think we got to a, a, a reasonable spot with that question. The next section of, of uh, questions are on fees and payment. Are we ready to, to move to fees and payment? Sure. <laughs> so what are the minimum standards for fee setting for therapists? How do they differ from legal business practices? It feels like therapists hold that a lot as ethical or not ethical but it doesn't seem to align with traditional business practices. So sliding scale or what we charge or, uh, and this is one that I've come across with folks who do like DBT or try to you know set up things differently. Why can't therapists keep money for unused services if clients pay in advance for a reduced rate? And, and I think this goes back to power differentials um, and, and all of that, but it's, it's this higher standard around how we set fees, how we enforce these fees, and what we have to do if we put together like packages? So there's a lot in this question. I know. I kind of combine them. So maybe we we parse them out. Where, where do you want to start? Okay. So ethically, what do you have to do with fees? You have to come to an agreement with clients about your fees before starting services. They have to know what they're going to be charged. That's ethically, that's legally, you know, no surprise billing sorts of things. They have to know what they're paying and what that's based on. Can you set that to be one cent per session? Totally. They just need to have that be the expectation and it's agreed upon before services start. And nobody's forcing you to charge a bajillion dollars per session, but if that's what's agreed upon... You better have some standards that you can do better therapy than the people around you. But the usual other end of this conversation is more pushing for fees to be on the downward side of things and that you must have sliding scale options or those kinds of things. Or how do you figure out what sliding scale options are? Or do you just ask people at the beginning of everything, how much you want to pay for therapy? Oh, $9 per session. Great. That's what you say. The the bare bones of this is there has to be a fee that you agree upon, even if that's zero dollars, that that is understood at the beginning. Now, some ethics codes say that you should do free work. 
Some ethics codes say that you should do work that is not expecting or charging very little for some of the work that you do. It does not say that that has to be therapeutic sessions. And so that can be, you know, serving as board members for your therapist organization. That can be putting out an award-winning podcast or a (laughs) not award-winning podcast that is something where you are giving back with your therapeutic skills to a community of people without the expectation of your regular fee or sometimes any fee at all. So I think that some people take that as a very literal, like the ethics codes say that you need to do pro bono work or reduced fee work. And they interpret that as the only way that you are doing work is by seeing clients. And I think that that's kind of become uh, just one of those things that sits in the background, but there's a lot of interpretation like, you know, have you done some pro bono work today? Yeah, I wrote some blogs that I put out to a, you know, a number of parenting groups on, you know, family systems kinds of things. Great. That's pro bono work. On the other end, there are those folks who say that people are charging too much. And so is there an upper limit of what we can charge and how do we ethically follow rules around that? So this is where it's not taking advantage of clients and Mm. that is going to vary wildly. And, you know, as much as many people in our profession are going to hate what I'm about to say next, privileged and wealthy people need therapy too. And if your fees are not taking advantage of them, if your fee is solidly providing services, it's doing good work. You know, I was approached by someone several years ago that is w- within the realm of household names across the U.S. And they said, you know, we don't really want to bring our child to the therapy office, what would your fee be to come to our location of Los Angeles placement? Um, (laughs) So very weird way to say that. They they have places all over the world. I'm just Uh, saying, come, come to, come to us. You could have just said, come to us versus all those words. (laughs) How much would it, how much would it cost to come to us to do a therapy session here? And I said, well, your location is about X distance from me, uh, plus the therapy time, plus me to travel back to my office. That would realistically be, you know, three sessions worth because I'm not able to book somebody immediately before or immediately after you. And they said, that's fine. You know who we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is is that taking advantage of somebody? No, it's an agreed upon fee. The rationale of it's explained. They you know, stated that it was okay. Am I upselling them because I have heard of them? No, this is all within the realm of this is my fee. This is how I apply it. Sure. Now, and I think you probably could also have gone and there's wear and tear on the car and there's this and there's that. And so the fee is X. Right. Now, and they probably still would have said fine. <laughs> now, is my fee and my specialty in a very, you know, 
privileged and wealthy part of Los Angeles, something that is going to seem astronomical to somebody who's beginning out their career in a lower cost of living area that's a lot more surrounded by poverty sorts of things? Absolutely. I accept that. Can you tell me how to run my business? You can have your opinions on it, but there's nothing within our ethics codes or our laws that say we all have to follow the exact same income strategies. Okay. So we can follow basic legal business practices, except where they differ from the our ethical codes. So I, I want to get back to someone telling you what to do. So put a pin in that. Let me finish the fees and then we'll we'll get we'll get to the other therapist questions on laws <laughs> and ethics. But I've heard, and maybe this was just from Camped and it's something where it's a little bit more cautious than it needs to be. If I say, if you pay ahead for six months worth of treatment, this is what it would cost. And then if they don't complete it, I have to give back at least a certain portion of that amount. Is this an ethics code or is this just... This is an ethics code and a legal thing. Okay. So explain that to me. You can only charge for services actually provided. And so if you say you pay ahead for X number of sessions and they don't use that number of sessions, you have to give them that money back because that fee that you agreed with them upon at the beginning, you're now charging them for services that you didn't provide. I think attorneys have this too, right? Like you can be on retainer, but they, you, you, they can't charge for services they don't provide. Right. So... There's That's that. pretty similar. Yeah. And, and, and then a, a couple of minutes ago, you said, well, if you give a discount on this, there's an article from Ben Caldwell that we'll put in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. But it basically describes that if you're giving a discount for services based on kind of a package deal, you're kind of de facto serving as an insurance company. And you don't want to be acting as an insurance company. But for moral reasons, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) of course, that was that was given. I I want that to be on your part of the transcript, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) Find our transcripts over at mtsgpodcast.com. And so funny, but what you're offering as far as a package deal, if they're not taking you know, full advantage of all of the sessions. Are you going back to them and being like, well, since you didn't do it, that changes what our agreement was on a per session basis. You know, are are you, you know, the government like, hey, we've been taking taxes all year, but it's April 15th. We need a little more money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think those things get confusing. And I think that's probably beyond the scope of this, this uh, episode, especially because we're getting real close on time. But I, to me, it seems like there, there are business practices that we need to pay attention to. There are some ethics around you can't charge for services that are not provided. And there's also you can't change from what was agreed upon. Correct. Okay. All right. So with respect to other therapists, the questions I see a lot or that come up for me when I'm in some of these Facebook groups is, do we have to go to other therapists first before reporting them to the board? Do we actually need to report anyone to the board? And are there confidentiality issues if we go either to another therapist or to the board? 
we did a whole episode on impaired therapists. So we go into more depth about that. But this is something I continue to see over and over again. You need to report them to the board or you need to do this. And this, I think, comes from like, you know, sometimes it's doxing, sometimes it's canceling. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens. But what do we actually need to do if we're concerned that another that one of our colleagues or potentially another therapist in a different with a different license is doing something wrong? So our ethics codes largely encourage us to go to those other therapists first. And part of this is when we're talking about harmed clients, we have to look at who actually has the right to release the records that somebody was in therapy with this person in the first place. And a lot of times that comes down to the client themselves. You know, if, you know, let's, let's say that there's a, a therapist that you and I both know in the community. Yeah, let's call the therapist John Doe. Okay. Uh, the I hear, you know, from somebody, hey, my therapist John Doe did something, you know, that you know was a sexual pass at me. Tried to, you know, encourage sex with me in session. I, as another therapist, don't have any proof in going to. Uh, an ethics committee or to a licensing board that there was actually even a therapeutic relationship there. You know, this kind of is like, yeah, I heard from somebody. They seem credible within what they're describing sort of thing here. But knowing that as part of the investigation, the licensing board or the ethics committee is going to be like, okay, do we have the client's permission to actually talk about them being in therapy in the first place? Yeah. So as an ethics code, and holding ourselves to a higher thing, our mechanism of action is to actually encourage to approach the John Doe's in these situations to say, hey, this is something that is being reported about you within the community, but you are kind of limited in your ability to actually report anybody to a licensing board without client permission. Well, can I even go to John Doe if my client says, no, don't talk to him? I would respect the client's wishes in that case, because if that is your client in this situation, you know, I think where I was describing it is, hey, I'm just somebody and, sure. you know, sure. I'm, I'm at a dinner party and somebody is like this. But if it's my client and they say, don't do that, you can't do that because they're not giving you permission to break confidentiality. What you can do is inform them on, here's how you as a client can file this report. And here's how I can support you in that process. But if they say, don't go to John Doe, you are not legally allowed to go to John Doe. So it's the professional therapy never includes sex. There's, you know, that, that brochure, there's that kind of stuff. But if it's just something that's in the, in the therapist community and you hear, or, or your social setting and you hear something, do you have to go to the other clinician? Do you have to do anything with that information? Lazily, you don't have to. We would hope as a profession that you're able to use your skills of helping shape other people's behaviors to help shape the behavior of those other people who are representing you and your license. So it's a you should, but you don't have to. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Because I think people feel like they need to. And I think there are times when it may be hard for someone to approach 
a colleague in the community. There's there are times when it may feel like it's just so nebulous. It feels premature. I mean, I think there's there's several pieces to this where, I mean, that's a pretty hard decision. Yeah. And depending on how unhinged John Doe is in these situations, I understand why some people might not want to spend their non-working-with-clients time exuding that kind of energy, especially if it brings you within the targeted sights of somebody who's acting and behaving in this kind of way. Okay, so we're low on time. I think we've gotten through most of the questions that I think were most important on kind of our ethics mailbag. Are there any other questions that you had received that you want to make sure we address before we close up? I think this is good for this ethics mailbag. I think if you do have more questions, make sure that you send them into us. Uh, if it's on our social media or by email, send it to us at podcast at therapyreimagined.com. And you know, follow us on our social media, that kind of stuff. Reach out to us. Let us know your questions. We'll collect them. We'll probably do another mailbag in the future. And if you want to continue to support us, you know, get your CEs through us. Follow the directions at the beginning and the end of the episode. Consider supporting us on Patreon where you get some extra content from time to time or buy me a coffee. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 